And now, coming to you from the Gershwin Room, high above the Crude Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strahan and Gary K. Wolf on the Crude Street Podcast! And welcome me back from Finland, because that's where I was last I know, week. you're often like, was it the land of the midnight sun or something, weren't you, Gary? I took a photograph at midnight, and it was still dusk out. I mean, it's, uh, we were at a, this is, this is, first of all, another plug for the Helsinki 217 bid, because... I'm not 2017. Uh, I'm now convinced that Finland knows how to put on a really civilized, well-organized convention, even if it's in a place I'd never heard of before, a town of 11,000 people on a, uh, called Noriaham, on uh, an archipelago halfway between Sweden and Finland, which is legally part of Finland, but culturally Swedish. But it was a convention that was mostly uh, Scandinavians and Brits and a few people um, from other parts of the world, but it, it just ran like clockwork. Uh, everybody was polite. There was a lot of uh, fanish activity that I usually don't get involved in, the yeah. gaming and, um, um, and, and, and costuming and masquerades and that sort of thing. But it all seemed like one seamless convention in one very interesting um, open-air area. The thing that's very strange to me about people who live on what is roughly the latitude of Alaska, is that when the high temperature is what we would consider a, a, a cool spring day, they think it's midsummer, and it is midsummer, I guess, for them. So they're, all the doors are open, everybody is eating out on the patios, even when it's chilly by our standards. But um, the guest for myself, I was a scholar guest, which is something else that's rare at conventions. George R. R. Martin was in Paris, was, was the American writer guest, his wife Paris was the fan guest, and um, and Karen Tidbeck and Johannes Anasalo were the two writer guests from um, Sweden and Finland. So it was about 800 people and was just about as balanced and lovely a convention as I've been to in a few years. 800 people is pretty impressive for a small island. I mean, how many people... I mean- Set the picture for us. How did you get there? I mean, what, you flew into Finland and then hopped in a coracle and rode or something? It was pretty much something like that. <coughs> I did come back I, to this. I expect oh. them to run coracle-con quite soon. <laughs> well, that wouldn't... That, okay, one of the things they did, this is how well-organized it was. We actually flew into Stockholm a couple of days earlier just to see some museums and things. Then you take a cab to the ferry landing and... And you get on what they call a ferry, which is, by our standards, a Caribbean cruise ship with state rooms and casinos and restaurants and game rooms and duty-free shops. <coughs> and then it's five and a half hours uh, on the boat to get to Mariaham, during which the, the, the Finns had organized seminars in translation on board. So their convention oh, wow. actually on board this, uh, this really nice, comfortable ship. And then coming back, it's another full day to get five and a half hours back to Stockholm. We spent a night in Stockholm and flew back the next morning. Um, so it, it is hard to get there, and yet the place is clearly a tourist attraction. Yeah. Uh, it's, 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 it's a very nice kind of Nantucket, sort of New England-feeling uh, island, uh, which attracts people from both Finland and um, and from Sweden, and a fair number of people from St. Petersburg, Russia, for that matter, which is not that far away. Well, okay. You, you, you've traveled as a guest scholar to, you know, some islands in the middle of the ocean, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. 
what kind of <coughs> different science fiction and fantasy did you encounter there? I mean, obviously, there were a couple of names that we recognized, and we'll talk about them in maybe a moment. But did you encounter work you weren't familiar with, uh, people who were working in the field in ways you didn't know? There's a movement called, uh, not surprisingly, I guess, uh, called The Finnish Weird, uh, which produced a couple of issues of a magazine. It's a kind of... Um, I, they made it very clear to me that this is not a fictional equivalent of Norwegian black metal because Norwegian black metal is just a Norwegian <laughs> thing. It's what they do. Those people are the ones who scream and... Uh, so basically it's an entire island of 11,000 people saying we're not Lordy, we're not Lordy fans. We're pretty, just, much, yeah, yeah. pretty much along those lines. Uh, but apart from that, the uh, I'm, I'm reaching for it now. Um... There were some people whose names I came to know over the weekend who uh, have by and large not been translated. The nice thing about this magazine, for example, there's a writer named Anne Leinonen, uh, and I'm not sure I'm pronouncing the word correctly, the name correctly at all. Uh, but since these publications are beginning to appear, uh, this one, for example, is, is actually in English. Yeah. And might be a source for those of you who are on the lookout for interesting short fiction to try to find things from uh, some of these more remote publications. Uh, the other thing that became apparent to me is that uh, in the, in, uh, this was told to me partly by, by themselves and partly by other people, that when writers like um, Johanna Senesalo or Karin Tidbeck get recognition um, in the United States or the UK or Australia, that does a great deal to promote the reputation at home. Yeah. Uh, they become international literary figures, which seems to be... <coughs> I guess it's a big deal for anybody writing in any country. But for a country that feels linguistically isolated the way Finland does, yeah. uh, it's, uh, it, it, it's a particular honor. One of the reasons the conference was entirely in English is that English is, is a common language between Finns and Swedes, since... Uh, uh, most a lot of people in Finland speak Swedish, but not a lot of people speak Finnish except people who are Finns. Yeah, well, I was going to say because it's like Finland is basically Mormon trolls and Vikings, and that's all, right? Yeah, well, I I I I, I got caught up on that. Uh, right, exactly. Uh, I have to say, readers, I'm deliberately winding we, him up here. I know that it's like, more to Finland than that. Okay, I, I I did the same thing. I'm sure a lot of Americans do, and George Martin did this once or twice too. They're not Norway. They're not Iceland. Uh, they, 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 they didn't write the Elder Eddas. They didn't uh, produce Viking raids on England. As a matter of fact, one of the things that was pointed out to me once is that they got raided by the Vikings. You know, they're not exactly... You know, <laughs> Viking fans, yeah. But by Viking fans, no. So what did they do then? And Women the, trolls then? Sweden was apparently a powerful... Uh, uh, country uh, in, in, in 19th century European politics and exactly what happened to it is something that um, any Swedish intellectual will be, glad, will be glad to describe at great length but it'll, it'll sound exactly like British intellectuals explaining what happened to the empire or American intellectuals explaining what happened to uh, the consumer utopia that we were supposed to be building. I ask partly, partly because it seems right. insulting to assume that just because Johannes Sinisalo and Karen Tidbeck have come to prominence in the last half dozen years and are major talents in the field, um, 
you know, I mean, they're surely more than the tip of an iceberg, you know. There's a whole culture there that they're writing as part of, and there are no doubt other very fine writers we're not hearing about. Uh, that's, no, that's no doubt true, and um, I think one of the things that uh, is fascinating to me when I read stories like this, because uh, Karin Jagannath received the Crawford Award a few years ago, they do make a great deal of use of local historical traditions, local uh, myths and folklore, and um, and uh, what you might call the character of uh, of the nation. I find that fascinating. I think mystery readers <coughs> take advantage of, of that kind of attitude more than we do reading in science fiction and fantasy. But um, but I think what what it's really saying is not just to the to the mainstream literary community there of which Johanna Senesalo is a major figure, having just won a five-year grant from her government while we were there. Um, what it represents is that more and more these writers are feeling part of an international community. Um, and one of the people we were talking about um, a little bit at the uh, convention was uh, Wolfgang Jeski, because um, somebody who knew him well, Jean-Henri Holmberg, was there. and. For most of his career, Jeski was a major figure in German publishing, a major publisher, a major writer, and so forth and so on, who never gained any real recognition as a writer in the United States at all. No, he didn't. The, the historical experience, and, and Andreas Eschbach, who was a fine novelist, the historical experience of European writers has been the nose pressed up to the glass of Anglo-American science fiction. They could never get in, they could get an occasional story or novel published. Now it feels like uh, these writers, at least, uh, are part of that community. How much of that window is ignorance and prejudice, and how much of it do you think is just the practicalities of translation? Well, there was a lot of discussion about translation going on. Um, the problems, one of the problems that happens with translating English novels into Swedish or Finnish is that by the time the translation comes out, everybody will have bought and read the English edition anyway. Yeah. Um, well, actually, the, <coughs> the science fiction bookshop in Stockholm, uh, SF Bookhandel, book, I don't know how you pronounce it, it's a, it's a science fiction bookshop in Stockholm, is one of the two or three best science fiction bookshops I've seen. I thought it was um, more impressive than um, Forbidden Planet. Yeah. Uh, it has a lot of gaming, a lot of that sort of thing. And what was interesting was that the number of English language titles about matched the number of Swedish titles. But then I went to the Swedish section and saw all these untranslated books by writers I didn't know. I was asking um, the, the owner, Mats, who is, by the way, a longtime Locust reader and a listener to this podcast, um, about, about some of these writers. And he, he said, basically... Um, there is a lot of interest in trying to get those writers translated into English, but they don't know how to break through. Uh, they don't know American publishers who can handle that. Uh, so, so you I end don't up think. Well, I mean, I, well, I was just saying, hang on. I don't think there are any Eng American publishers who can handle that. I mean, from what I can understand, we, I mean, obviously we've seen an increase in translation from China, particularly in the last couple of years. Mm. But a chunk of that seems to be government subsidized from within China. You know, I mean, so, for example, if you look at uh, the most high-profile example we have at the moment, which would be the three-body problem by Xixin Lu, 
that's government supported. Government paid for the translation, I believe. Oh, I didn't know that. Uh, there's actually some information in the book about it. Um, so, I mean, I'm not sure the exact details, but it leaves you, leaves you with the question that what sort of either you've got a, a individual who's donating their time, and so I think like when John Chu does a, a translation, when, when Ken Liu does a translation, yeah. uh, I've, I'm fairly confident probably that when uh, Ursula Le Guin uh, did her translations, um, that they were all done basically for nothing out of that, that person's for its, you know, own time. Just to sort well, of be supportive. As a commercial, for that reason, you're correct. As a commercial proposition, translations are not going to work very well because uh, Cheryl, who was on the uh, podcast uh, that we recorded there, uh, lists a number of books that she's recommending. But she and I were involved in this translation award, and sim simply getting people to judge the award uh, became an intractable problem. Getting translators to work. Uh, and 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 paying the translators and still having a chance of breaking even on a book is something a commercial publisher can't uh, can't do. I mean, there's a great deal of affection for Jeff and Ann Vandermeer for what they've been trying to do for Finnish writers in the last four or five years, including sure. um, uh, uh, Lena Krohn and some of the other writers who are, who are fascinating writers. Uh, but they're doing this as a small press, which um, I'm sure they want to make money at it. And I'm sure they probably do make some money, but by and large, they can take risks the larger publisher simply won't take. Well, sure. And you can certainly have, I mean, we are, I guess, no, no, I guess, it's not I guess. We are very fortunate to have several very committed small presses functioning in the field mm -hmm. right now who are taking social and political positions with what they're doing that advantage us all. And certainly Cheeky Frog, when they support places like, you know, like Finnish writers, that sort of thing, are doing us all a service. When 12th Planet supports feminist science fiction, it's doing us all a service. Um, but there is an issue, I guess, of how you make it more viable, because for the writers you're talking about in that Swedish bookstore, you know, uh -huh. if, if, if their Swedish titles are going to come out from Golans and from Tor and from HarperCollins... Um, there's got to be some process to get them translated, and you know the the only really story I ever think about is talking to the French translator of Neil Stevenson, and how it costs more to pay to get Neil Stevenson translated than you pay Neil Stevenson. That's true, but then again, that's a lot of work. Um, I, I think one of the issues is, <coughs> is 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 obviously the expense that's involved, mm -hmm. but the other issue is. The expense might be worth it. The expense seems to be worth it when you're translating Murakami, for example. Well, not Murakami. Uh, when you're translating, um, okay, who am I thinking of? The Einstein on the beach. Um, Isn't that anyway? Oh, but, but if you've got a best-selling writer, yeah. Uh, if you've got a writer who can win a World Fantasy Award, if you've got a kind of world figure, let's say a Garcia Marquez or uh, a, a Gunter Grass. Yep. Translation is not a problem. No. The problem is an unknown writer in a genre, and it may be getting genre readers. It's, there's a general problem in, in America for, um, for any translated work to, to sell any number of copies. I mean, something like 3% of American fiction that's published is translated from another language. So there's a resistance on the part of Americans, and I don't know, this may be true of Australians and, and, and Brits as well, but I think there's more of a resistance within our field. 
Uh, by and large, I still think genre readers are driven by brand names, and brand names are largely the names of writers. And it's very difficult for a writer um, to get a foothold in this field. For yeah. example, Carol Kidbeck has written a number of very good short stories, some of which have shown up in American anthologies. But the normal pattern that we see, or the common pattern that we see, with Ken Liu publishing a bunch of short stories and everybody wants to see the novel, Rachel Sorsky punched a bunch of short stories and everybody wants to see the novel, Kelly Link, Mary Rickard, and so forth. It's very difficult for a European writer in translation to get that kind of early exposure in the States, especially in genre fiction. Yeah. But do you think we're more open to it now? I think we're becoming more open to it. I don't think anybody is actively opposed to it. I don't think there's any uh, sense of, um, of what there were probably back in the 70s. Uh, because I talked to a French translator who at one point, Jean-Daniel Jean Breck, who's still works as a translator, and I was asking him why we were only then beginning to see some French science fiction. One of the things he said was that a lot of French science fiction and a lot of German science fiction during the 50s and 60s consisted of bad imitations of American science fiction. Yeah. Uh, why would we want to see, you know, um, pale copies of, of, of analog stories retranslated back into English? Yeah, I can understand uh, that. Mm -hmm. I said I can understand that. What I was also thinking, actually, is you know, you talk about again this Swedish bookstore and this wall of Swedish fiction, or you know, mm -hmm. large section of Swedish fiction. And if you look I, from your perspective, I mean, how do you tell one from the other? I mean, if you're going to translate one to bring it back, kind of thing, or half a dozen to to present them to the you know, the English language field, how how do you choose? How, how do you tell what's good when you can't read Swedish? I know. All I can say, all I can think, is that somebody there has to do it. Yeah. Publishers, um, and I've talked to some European publishers. Sometimes keep an eye out when they're acquiring a, a book as to whether they think they can get a translation market for it. But then that depends on publishers in Sweden or Norway or Finland or Holland or wherever to have some sense of what's marketable and usable as science fiction and fantasy. And I don't think publishers there are at all attuned to that. The one thing that became clear to me, talking to the academics, both from Sweden and Finland, is that um, science fiction and fantasy are still regarded as uh, essentially a version of children's literature. Yeah. The attitudes in academia uh, seem to be about what they were in the United States or the UK 20 years ago. Yeah. So there's still a bias against this sort of thing. Yeah. You know? Sense that if, 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 if it's literary fiction, they can get it translated. If it looks like genre fiction, probably not. Okay. Did, I mean, you were there as a scholar, guest of honor. Do you feel that, um, based on your extensive experience of one convention, that mm. European conventions are more open to academic approaches to science fiction and fantasy? Um, I was surprised at how open it was. I mean, I uh, was scheduled. This is my luck at going to any convention. I had to give a lecture at the convention. The one item. One item that was opposite my lecture was George R. R. Martin's signing, yep. uh, which had basically everybody in the convention lined up, and as people got their books signed, they trickled in. But it turned out to be a sizable audience, and the last uh, evening, the, the last afternoon of the convention, was simply a conversation between Neil Harrison of Strange Horizons and myself, and the room was absolutely packed, and it wasn't simply packed with the other yeah. scholars, it, people wanting to hear a discussion about science fiction. So. That is brilliant. Uh, that's what I mean about a unified community. Yeah. 
That is brilliant. I'm going to do that next time. Next time you have a signing, I'm sorry, have a panel, have a George R.R. R. Martin signing in the panel. In that the room. That would be a good way to keep Absolutely. That would get you an audience. I wonder if George would be up for that. We should definitely investigate that. Next time we'd like Cood Street Live, we'll ask him if he'll come and do, sign in the corner. Not come on the podcast, just sign. Yeah, he wouldn't sign books in the corner and people will be forced to listen to us. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm up for that. That would be awesome. I'm, I think I'm totally up for that. Now, you've been off at Archipelagon. You've obviously recorded an episode of the podcast that will either come out before this one or after, maybe after this one, the way this particular yes. conversation is, is trending. And that's great. Um, tell me, what else have you been up to? Because I know that you know you've you know, been various things going on. You're obviously reading for the for you, you're reviewing, and there've been other academic projects, and there's been talk about writing books and all sorts of things. And I don't talk to you about this stuff enough, given you were an academic guest of honor at all at, at, at an actual convention. That's the yeah. It's the second time I think I've ever done that. The other one. Uh, was at a convention in Pittsburgh called Confluence, uh, which it wasn't even that wasn't an academic guest of honor. That was a critic guest of honor, and there's a fine distinction to be made there. Mm. Uh, <coughs> but um, but it's it, it, it's an unusual convention, and it's much more common, as I've said before, in Europe than it is here, for everybody to be interested in everything. Yeah, um, I, you know the fact that. Uh, uh, my, my my partner Stacy and and Karen Tidbeck were talking about how they're going they're going to get me to play Call of Cthulhu sometime, and they're trying to explain the rules to me of this gaming thing. Which I understand video games, but role playing games. Um, <laughs> but I, I kept saying how how much do you have to know about Lovecraft? And they kept explaining the people who play this game don't know anything about Lovecraft, and then I'm saying. <laughs> Well, why do you call it Call of Cthulhu then? Because Call of Cthulhu is an actual short story. Are you constrained by the Lovecraft oh, you universe? Poor sad academic man. <laughs> I know, but this is what academics do. We ask naive questions. Um, remember, Dungeons and Dragons was was the game that was still around when I was on. So it turns out I'm asking them. Okay, so you have so much leeway that you're just kind of using Lovecraft nomenclature. And if I wanted to bring let's say, My Little Pony into the Call of Cthulhu game, I could do that. And they both said, sure. And at that point, I thought, okay, this conversation is, is beyond me. <laughs> I had no idea where to go with that. Uh, I should say, I mean, one of the things I was, I was thinking about, uh, privately we've discussed various non-fiction projects that are happening in the world, and I note that just, I think, this week, a uh, friend of the podcast and a friend of a mutual friend of ours, Edward James, has just released a book on the work of Lois McMaster Bujold. Mm -hmm. And that's part of the University of Ohio series, is it? It's the University of Illinois series, Illinois. which I've been a consulting, I've been an informal consulting editor on uh, since it began, really. Uh, I'm looking, as a matter of fact, as, I, as we speak, I have a new manuscript about Alfred Bester to look at. <coughs> but Edward's book is the first book to be published in this series, uh, which deals, I think, the first book to be published that deals with a female writer of any sort. Um, yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons that, um, that, that we should be excited about it. I'm, I, I think we should talk to Edward about that at some point, because um, he knows, I've read, the, I've read the book, I've read the manuscript. He knows Bujold inside and out. He makes extremely sophisticated historical cases for um, 
for, for her, not only her science fiction, but her fantasy novels, which I wasn't even very much aware of. Um, so, so, so I think she's exactly the kind of writer that this series should be, should be covering. I think Edward is exactly the right person to do it. Hmm. Well, I mean, I'm interested because obviously our mutual friend Karen Burnham wrote a book on Greg Egan for the series. There was quite an interesting book about John Brunner done. Uh, there was a Gregory Benford book done. I mean, as you say, um, all men to date, and hopefully that's going to uh, turn around fairly quickly in coming volumes. I, th I see a Frederick Pohl volume is slated. Um, there is one wow. thing I'm personally taken about. This is something I was talking about on social media. And as we run off into you know, a digress for a second, there's, I don't know if you're familiar, but Bloomsbury publish a series of books uh, under the uh, series title 33 and a third and mm -hmm. and what they are is there may be 100 to 200 page long books about one specific famous album you know, uh, so it'd be like abbey road by the beatles is one book right and i think it'd be really interesting to get a bunch of people to write short books about single famous science fiction fantasy books or even stories, for that matter. Um, you know, get like mm. Michael Swanwick to write a book about Lud and the Mist. Get Kim he Stanley Robinson to write a book about Olaf Stapledon. That, to get short books like that, if you could do it commercially, that's, uh, that would be an interesting project. Bloomsbury is also interested in doing historical stuff about science fiction, now it turns out. But um, there's a series, and I don't know who the publisher is, of similarly short books about classic movies and mm -hmm. one of them for example is a Jonathan Lethem book about They Live mm -hmm. uh, and it's, it's it's a novella length non-fiction book and it's absolutely fascinating yeah look uh, uh, so Lethem actually wrote a book about uh, the Talking Heads album uh, one of their albums Remain in Light I think maybe it was yeah a and uh, John Darnell who you may or may not be familiar with uh, mm -hmm. John Darnell is the lead singer of The Mountain Goats and wrote a, a really f terrific novel that was shortlisted for the, I think it was the American Book Award last year called White Wolf in a Van, I think it was called. And he wrote a short book, uh, which uh, was a great book. I strongly rec recommend you check it out. Um, and he's written a short book about Black Sabbath's Masters of Reality, told from the from perspective of a, it's actually fictionalized from the perspective of a young man being held in a mental health care facility hmm. uh, because Darnell himself was a nurse in one of these facilities for a number of years. Really interesting, really interesting man, really interesting writer, and goes to show there are different ways of approaching texts and um, social and, and, and uh, media cultural icons and to talk about them, to illuminate them. It's really very interesting. No, I, I think it is interesting. It's an interesting project. I think it would be interesting to have um, exactly the kind of uh, series you talk about, not just necessarily about science fiction novels and stories, but maybe classic movies or even TV episodes. Mm -hmm. What's missing or what's, what is the weakest link in, uh, in this relationship between science fiction criticism, scholarship, and just readers is... The kind of informal essay, the sort of thing that appears occasionally on Tor.com or at Strange Horizons, the sort of thing that Joe Walton does in her Locus Award-winning What is So Great About This Book, um, which are appreciations. And that's exactly what I think makes Joe's uh, collection of her Tor columns um, a lot of fun to read. She's, she's not writing critical essays about uh, these books. She's writing 
a kind of archaic form which we used to call literary appreciation. She's talking about why things work. She's not overlooking the problems in books. She's not overlooking um, the fact that some uh, books that are just immensely appealing uh, should not work at all or that they have really serious gender problems or that the characterization doesn't work in Arthur C. Clarke. But the question as, as to why certain things work um, is, is relatively unexplored. And this kind of informal essay about the things we love in the field um, uh, it ought to be more publishable than ever with all the online magazines and blogs, but it seems to be a kind of writing that um, has disappeared for a long time, maybe reappearing now, I don't know. I wonder if some of that is because you need to find really good writers to write it. I think that's what the idea is, that you get, in the case of this uh, film series, I'm sure that whoever was editing the series was not thinking that they were going to get a lot of people who wanted to read a book about They Live, the old horror movie, but they might want to uh, have a lot of people who want to read something that Jonathan Nathan thought was important or interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's like, well, I just read a terrific piece by Har Hari Kunzru, uh, mm -hmm. K-U-N-Z-R-U, Kunzru, Kunzru, I don't know. Uh, on the in the Guardian, now the Guardian's got a pretty, uh, I think, checkered history in writing mm. in, in covering science fiction. They've they publish a number of quite good pieces, and then a large number of very mediocre pieces by one or two people who you have no idea why they're writing for anybody at all, right? Right. Without naming names, and Kunzer's done a couple of pieces. He did a very good piece several years ago on Le Guin. And he's just done a great piece, I mean a really great piece, on Dune as part of its 50th anniversary. Mm -hmm. And it's really interesting because I found that not only was it really well written, which is a really key thing, it's got a, the whole piece has a really nice uh, structure to it uh, and brings you back to a different, you know, an interesting point to reflect back on how the, the book is seen. Uh, it's smart because it puts the book in historical context. It provides interesting information I'd never heard of before. I did not know Frank Herbert was distantly related to Joe McCarthy. I didn't know that either. I did not know that Frank Herbert, Herbert had covered the McCarthy hearings as a journalist. Hmm. Nope, that's news to me as well. Um, and yet this information is in the um, th this article in The Guardian. Um, and I wasn't... What, what I like, one of the things I really like is he talks about the, the initial ideas of, that led to June being written, which apparently came when uh, Herbert went to Oregon in the late 1950s. Yes. Uh, at a time when they were looking to stabilize sand dunes and they were planting uh, alien grass, you know, like non local grasses to kind of stabilize the dunes and all that Try kind of stuff. Try to bind the dunes, yeah. Yeah. And then he talks about how this experience inspires Herbert to write the book. Uh, and then how the nature of the book as he's writing it changes and becomes more influenced by mysticism. It also becomes more influenced by environmentalism. And how once the book's written and launched into the world, the way it's read changes because it's, you know, by the time you get to the two, you know, 2015 reading June, what you mm -hmm. notice far more is the post 9-11 environmental sort of global warming kind of aspects of it that perhaps were not as obvious at the time it first came out and then he segues that back to how now what they're doing in Oregon is trying to remove all of these um, 
foreign grasses that they've planted to stabilize dunes to restore the natural dune environment that existed mm. there. It's a really clever piece and gives really interesting insights into the book. And that's the kind of thing we need more of. I think it's true. I think we need a, a pieces like that. I'm not sure I agree that the reading Dune now makes us more aware of those issues than it would have been um, in, the, in the 1960s or 70s or 80s. Uh, as a matter of fact, I think the opposite is true. I think more people read Dune today as, a, as an epic fantasy than as an ecological uh, novel at all. Mm -hmm. uh, but one of the things I was looking at when you, because when you start getting close to uh, anniversaries where we're three years away from the 50th anniversary of Stand on Zanzibar, and I was just one of these lectures I'm working on was going to deal with ecology. And so I looked again at the sheep look up, um, and, and then there was a Philip Wiley novel that came out after, uh, uh, just a few years after Dune was published, there was an immense number of um, science fiction novels dealing with uh, not just overpopulation, but with um, things like antibiotic-resistant um, viruses and bacteria that show up in, in, in the Brunner novel. Uh, you know, the warming of the ocean, the greenhouse effect. I looked this up. This is a piece of trivia which I suspect everybody else in the world knows. Do you know who coined the term the greenhouse effect? No, I do not know who ter term coined the term. Apparently Thomas Edison in 1917. Really? Wrote an essay. He was interested in a lot of things. No, no, no I'm sorry, not Thomas Edison. Oh, okay. Alexander Graham Bell. Okay, that's still interesting. It's still interesting. The inventor of the telephone, uh, who thought of himself primarily as a teacher to the deaf, but he was interested in a lot of issues, and apparently wrote a paper in 1917 in which he specifically talked about how the overuse of fossil fuels could lead to a kind of greenhouse effect, turning the earth into a sort of greenhouse. And uh, exactly the way that people later uh, discovered evidence to support. Um, so the, that term had been around for a long time. By the early 70s, it's showing up in movies. Yeah. There, there's a, Dune came out three years after Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. So I think people saw it, if anything, as more of an immediate environmental novel in the 60s and 70s than they did 20 or 30 years later because people reading that original novel, or I should say the original trilogy, um, yeah. I think the first three books do kind of form a whole, I think those people were really seeing this as science fiction, and I think partly because of the endless add-ons since then, you, newer readers have seen it as another kind of epic fantasy series of battling uh, galactic empires and, 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 and barons versus freemen and so forth and so on. Look, it's almost apocryphal to say this, but I honestly think you're better off stopping at the first book. Um, I could make an argument for the second book because I think it explains some flaws in the first book. The third one, going back to our one of our earliest features on this. Uh, <laughs> one long podcast. abandoned, I think I know the one you mean, books you don't need to read. Yeah, books you don't need to read, and pretty much I would agree that after the first Dune, there is no other. Yeah. Um, that's awful. That's a terrible paraphrase of, of Dylan Thomas. But no, I, I guess we should be fair, though. I mean, hang on. We should be fair, though, right? Just for a second. We say this bathed in ignorance, Gary. Because whilst it is true that I've read Dune, Dune Messiah, Children's Dune, the god-awful god-emperor of Dune, and it's a truly terrible book, and I've read Heretics mm -hmm. of Dune. I didn't read Chapter House of Dune. And I've not read any of the 
books written by Kevin Anderson and Brian Herbert, which could be terrific. I'm not saying they aren't. What I'm saying is that the, in terms of reading this as an epic of environmental thinking, or an epic of not even really environmental thinking, ecological thinking, yeah. working out a system, he pretty much had that done. And I, I don't think that by the time you got to Children of Dune, there was much more to work out on that. The, 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 the novels become more and more involved with the terraforming of Dune, in effect. Um, so that the, the initial impetus of looking at this as a major piece of environmental fiction is not what led to all these sequels. What I think led to all the sequels was that it was a terrific kind of fantasy-like empire. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of feel like you don't need to read beyond sort of um, <coughs> the end of the first book. To, well, to get the effect of, if you want to know what the impact of Dune was, that's certainly all you need to read. Uh, but, you know, that can be said of a lot of continuing series. How many of uh, Anne McCaffrey's Dragon Riders books do you really need to read? Well, no, I mean, sometimes you read because you enjoy them. I mean, in fact, the argument for the Brian Herbert kevin anderson books uh -huh. if you like is the argument for uh all of the later Pern books as well even though they're written by exactly. annie and that is they don't do anything new particularly but if you enjoy them you'll probably continue to enjoy them you know and if that's what you want to do then that's fine but the heart of it all is in this book i'm holding yes, a copy of june readers that's why and i'm waving it and that's why the 50th anniversary is important because it, it, it remains uh and I, I i didn't reread the whole thing but i um I was surprised at how well the opening chapters worked and some, some of the later chapters um, as well. In terms of the prose, in terms of writing, it holds up very well. Yeah, I think it does. Uh, I simply think that the, 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 the Dune as a science fiction classic um, is, is uncorruptible in a, in a sense. It's, 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 it's got uh, some very effective, even very effective female characters from the mid-60s for a writer like Herbert coming out of the analog tradition. But it's still um, a science fiction classic. And one of the things I was looking at, the reason I mentioned Anne McCaffrey is the Pern stories, as we mentioned on an earlier podcast, were bought by John W. Campbell for analog. Sure, sure. As, as was, in fact, June. As, as, as in fact, was, was Dune, yes. Was, was Dune in analog? Yeah. Yes, it was. It was indeed. With the shown hair covers. And, that's yeah, right. Absolutely. In fact, I was going to quibble with something else that's happened around this darn June 50th anniversary, Gary. I'm going to sound cranky and tell you to get off of my lawn. And I'll tell you why. Okay. Uh, I saw a write-up recently of the quite apparently lovely, I've not seen it myself, the quite lovely edition of June published by the Folio Society. I've heard about that myself. I've not seen it. And, you know, at some point or another, I'll decide whether I'll spend $10,000 getting a copy or not. Um, unless the Folio Society are listening to this podcast, in which case my, I'm happy to send you my address if you'd like to send me a copy. Review copies, review copies come to me here at Locus. Yeah, but fine. yeah, but we've already re actually reviewed the book in the past, Gary. So really, we just need to appreciate it. So it really could go anywhere. Or if, if you know, in lieu of don donating to our non-existent pat uh, Patreon account, you mm -hmm. want to support the podcast by spontaneously sending us copies of the Folio Society of June, by all means, feel free to do so, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, so anyway. But that, it was described as the definitive edition of June. And it has, because it has an introduction, apparently a terrific one, by friend of this pod podcast, Michael Deirda. Uh-huh. Um, 
and it also has these lovely, lovely looking illustrations. But what it doesn't have is it doesn't have the Schoenher uh, illustrations. And I really? wonder if you can have a definitive edition of June without the Schoenher il illustrations. Does it? Ha it has original illustrations commissioned by. Yes, it, it does. Love, lovely ones. I've, it's it's terrible. I could have told you ten minutes ago who who did these lovely lo lovely illustrations, and I will in a moment uh, because you're going to hear me typing. So I'm going to look it up because I feel embarrassed. It's not not Greg well, Ruth, but it's somebody like that. <coughs> <coughs> But you raise an interesting issue, uh, which is... Aha! Thank you. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, it, it, the, the, the one true, almost insane definitive edition that I've seen in the last decade was the definitive mm. edition, definitive to the point of it being almost useless, actually, uh, edition of uh, the Martian Chronicles produced by Subterranean Press, which turned a nice, slim 200-page book into about an 800-page volume and had all kinds of variations of text and all this other kind of madness and artwork and all this kind of stuff. Now, right. th this um, Sam Weber is the guy who did the artwork for the Folio Society edition. Okay. It's beautiful. I mean, I'm looking at a picture of it now. Uh, I don't know what the book's like physically, but certainly the artwork's beautiful. But that artwork, is so, the Schoenher artwork, is so iconically connected to June. Can it be definitive without that artwork? And there aren't a lot of cases in the history of the field that I can think of immediately, though probably they'll occur to me later, where a particular group of a body of art is intrinsically linked in the culture of the science fiction field with a body of fiction. I think you're right, and I was about to say the same point, that uh, one of the unusual things about the Schoenher illustrations, if I'm not mistaken, is that they showed up on the cover of Analog, mm -hmm. on the cover of the Chilton House hardcover, and on the paperback. I'm not sure if they're on the Chilton House edition, but yes, they were used over and over and over again. And then they were kind of copied. I mean, even sort of, this, the, I'm holding up a 1980s, I guess, or 1970s, this is, a, this, is the, this is the 1968 British edition reprinted several times cover artwork. It's not shown her artwork, um, but it echoes it kind of thing, you know. Everybody's echoing that original yeah. art. The, the, the actual Sam Weber stuff doesn't. He does something quite interesting with it. So it's, it's lovely, but definitive? I don't know. Well, I'm not sure that definitive is, is, is a fair word to use when you're talking about works... Associational works not created by the author himself. Uh, iconic, yes. Uh, culturally important as an artifact, yes. But it has nothing to do with the definitiveness of the text. Mm -hmm. <coughs> the only other artist-writer uh, combination I can think of that I grew up with and is still seen around a lot is are the Joe Mugnini illustrations for uh, for Bradbury's the October. Probably so. Yeah, yeah. On, uh, and for a couple of decades, it was like, that's how you told a Ray Bradbury book. Uh, mm -hmm. you, can, you can judge a book by its cover. If it had a Joe McDaney cover on it, it was, and I'm, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that name correctly or not, but it was a, it was a signature of a Bradbury book. Um, back in the days of Weird Tales, I gather pulp uh, aficionados could associate an artist like Hannes Bach with a certain kind of... Uh, writer, and I, I think that may have happened during the pulp era, but in science fiction, I can't think of, you're right, I can't think of too many other cover paintings that are as iconic as, as, as Schoenhers were was for yeah. Dune. I think we need to investigate this, particularly by looking at these copies of um, 
Dune that are no doubt going to be sent to us at any minute. Uh, and then we'll yeah, be able yeah. to examine this, this more closely. I'm also tempted, though. I, I don't have the time, Gary. I've got too much new stuff to read, and I'm too far behind on my year's best reading. But I'd be tempted to read Dune and Stranger in a Strange Land back-to-back. Just to see if there are any echoes of concerns from the 60s, because they're sort of classic hippy-dippy 60s texts. Aren't well, in, in, in fairness, they became that. They were certainly not written with, in, in that spirit. No, okay, I don't believe they're written in that spirit either, but they came out at a s- roughly similar period of time. I mean, not the same year or anything, but, but they're within a few years of one another, right? Mm. And I wonder to what, what extent you'd find that the spirit of the time has col- colored those texts as they were being written. Uh, to some extent, I'm sure it has. I, I, I think that you'll find, um, let's see, a Stranger in a Strange Land must have been 61, I think. So it was a few years before then. Uh, but it's, and, and, and some people also regard that as um, the first of Heinlein's bloated period. His novels got longer and fatter and sloppier after that. But in 1966, which would be next year's 50th anniversary, he published The Moon is a Harsh Mistress, which is arguably as tight as any of his earlier novels. It's true, though. I mean, there's a book I'm afraid of rereading. I'm ve- really afraid of rereading that book. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you why I'm afraid of rereading that book, Gary. Uh, and it's why one of the people, actually, I mean, we talk about people we want to have on as guests on the podcast mm-hmm. in the future. One of, one of the people I'm eager to have on as a guest at some time in coming months, I'm not sure when, would be uh, Farah Mendelssohn. A uh, good friend of ours and good friend of the podcast, mm. and was on our uh, discussed jo- uh, was it Dinah Wynne Jones with us some years ago on the yes, podcast, right. and she's been rereading Heinlein. And what I'd be curious to see is whether Moon is a Harsh Mistress is as deeply problematic as I suspect it is. I remember it as being mm. a tautly written, thrilling book, and I glossed over the whole getting married to fourteen-year-old girls side of it. All right, mostly because I was a thirteen-year-old boy, I guess, when I read it. Literally, I was about 13 or 14 when I read it. And I wonder if now, if, if I were to go back and read it, I would kind of choke on that stuff. Um, I don't know, uh, because I've not finished rereading it. I, look, I, was, I was looking at it as, as an example of Heinlein still writing a tightly constructed story, even on the precipice of his going into his long philosophical phase. And my memory of that is that it's not, uh, it, it's, it's not homiletic. There's not a sermon about why this, you should do this. It's a kind of argument about the structure of society. So that Heinlein sets up certain terms and then using a certain kind of libertarian logic, other things devolve from that that seem a little bit icky to, to us from today's point of view. I mean, I think that's what his reasoning was, and that seems to be the kind of reasoning that Patterson was trying to reconstruct in his biography, although it, sometimes clumsily. It's interesting when we talk about Heinlein having read, you know, lost his ability to write a type, you know, write tightly, uh, because I don't know that I'm convinced he ever did. I've got. Well, a, I don't think uh, he lost his ability. I don't think he lost his ability. I think he lost any interest in writing yes, tightly. Yes, I think that's true. Thing. Because, I mean, obviously, uh, Moon's Harsh Mistress comes out, what, six years after Stranger? Uh, five five years maybe because um, Strange was sixty one, and Moon is sixty five sixty six sixty six okay five years, and then you know you come back in the nineteen eighties and he writes Friday, 
which yeah, is true. a fairly tightly written book and comes after two or three or four of his worst books ever. You know, I mean, I Will Fear No Evil, which is a terrible book, if I remember. And Number of the Beast, which is a dreadful book, if I remember it correctly. I couldn't finish either one of them, to be honest. I mean, I uh, did finish a couple of the later ones. And I know people who actually liked... Uh, I don't know anybody who liked The Number of the Beast. One of the big disappointments in reading the Patterson biography is exactly what happened. And, of course, Patterson's point of view is that all of these books were equally brilliant and people simply misunderstood them. Um, although there were some indications that even... Virginia knew that there were problems with some of these novels. Yeah. Oh, there are problems. Well, I think there are great problems. And actually, well, it, 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 Heinlein set a, set a pattern for me that I didn't realize I'd fallen into. And that is that there mm -hmm. are last books or two of elderly writers that I've never read. So, for example, I think I read the opening chapters of The Cat Who Walks Through Walls. And I never read To Sail Beyond the Sunset, though I bought a copy of it. And he read the cat who walks through walls, and I remember enjoying it. Yeah. Um, but I was enjoying it as the, the the sense I had because he was being very playful in that, and not terribly preachy. The sense you had is as being in a bar late at night with Heinlein telling you stories that are not necessarily coherently connected, but that are all entertaining in themselves. Yeah. Uh, I I got a sense I was listening to his voice throughout that book. The other book that I don't know how I'd feel about if I went back to, and I don't know how we quite segued here, but would be Time Enough for Love, which I remember loving and read a number of times in my teens, but I don't know about now. Yeah, I don't know about now. I was never particularly enamored of that. And I wouldn't ex yeah, expect yeah, that. I was I, never. I, yeah, sorry. I have a confession to make because yeah. it's, 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 it's bad for those of us who are claiming to have science fiction credentials. I was never impassionately in love with, with, with Heinlein. I came That's to right. Heinlein fairly late. I started reading science fiction with literary, who are now thought of as more stylists, with Sturgeon and Bradbury and later uh, Zena Henderson and Chad Oliver and so forth. Um, and Clark. I was a sucker for Clark. Heinlein's fiction, when I first went to it, and the first thing I read of his was a paperback of the Green Hills of Earth, seemed almost chilly in tone. Yeah. And the prose is fairly chilly. See, I well, see. I started off reading. I mean, my first science fiction book, like period, that I ever mm -hmm. read was Citizen of the Galaxy. Ah, okay. Which I think I still holds up. I reread some of those. Yeah, uh, some of them don't hold up at all, um, but that one probably does. Yeah. But you know, look, um, we you know, you probably sort of sort of to reiterate something. I, mean, I was talking about this in a completely different context just the mm -hmm. other night, uh, and that is that there is no right or wrong, and that we we all have vast holes in our reading experience, no matter how um, well informed we appear to be. You know, I, I wouldn't I would be lying if I thought there aren't half a dozen John Brunner novels I've never read. You know, I don't think I've ever read The Shockwave Rider, for example. I'm not sure I have either. Oh. You know, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I've never read. You I mean, Stan Robinson just listed his ten greatest novels of all time, or something somewhere, and he included um, Dahlgren by Samuel R. Delaney, mm -hmm. a book I have never been able to read. 
And the only thing that I found less penetrable than than Dahlgren were the Neveriona books. Okay, I had trouble with Neveriona. Um, partly because it, uh, they're, they're kind of very intellectual exercises uh, set in the fantasy world that I didn't find that compelling. Um, Dahlgren I remember enjoying a lot and never quite understanding why I was enjoying it. I think part, part of because Delaney's prose is just gorgeous. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's hypnotic, it draws you in, <coughs> and you can be two or three hundred pages in before you realize you're completely lost in this <laughs> mysterious city of Bologna. You don't quite know what's going on or why these characters are doing what they're doing. But eventually it does come together. But when you say, the reason I stopped feeling guilty about books I haven't read, classics I haven't read, and um, uh, I, I don't think I read The Shock, Shockwave Writer, I may have read Squares of the City, and in a sense, it doesn't make any difference to claim you've read a book or not claim you've read it, because even though I know I've read Dahlgren, if you ask me any question about it other than the name of the city, I probably will fail the exam. And that's true with a lot of other books. So what's the difference between never having read a book, which you feel guilty of, and having read a book but not remembering much about it, which you don't feel guilty of? Well, I guess, first of all, if you've read it and you don't feel, and you've forgotten it, it just didn't mean it, meant it wasn't very good. There's no reason to feel guilty about having wasted the time on it. And, and presumably you didn't know it was going to be a forgettable book when you started, right? You didn't sit there and go, huh, I'm going to read whatever that book is, um, and I have no recollection of it. The Boar Maker by Linda Nagata, maybe you don't remember. I'm looking at it random, it's at eye level in front of me. And, I reviewed that uh, I, 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 I look at list of my early reviews and I'm thinking, I don't even recognize that title. Um, <laughs> And then what about, I mean, like, I've got, I've got a Kindle full of stuff. I mean, the great enemy of the world in the, with the Kindle is, like, you, you've got no idea what you've actually got anymore. And I'm looking, like, there, no. there are new books we don't have time to read. I mean, I've got Wesley Chu's book, The Time Salvager here, which I'd like to be reading. I've got uh, mm. Nalo Hopkinson's new collection, Falling in Love with the Hominids. I've got Fran Wilde's Uplift, which I'm kind of curious about. I've got Francis Harding's The Lie Tree that I'm desperate to read. I've got Elliot de Bodard's The House of Shattered Wings. And I've got a new Yunha Lee novel to read, and I've got John, John Scalzi's latest book, and I've got, you know, um, new Libra Bray's latest book, and over here behind us, sitting there waiting to be read, are the new books by Cecilia Holland, and there's a Seth Dick Dickinson book, mm. which I'm, I'm lating at the moment. I'm love-hating it. I, started, I read the first few chapters, and I love-hate it. Good, that's interesting. Because it starts off very interestingly, but I find it horribly problematic at the moment, a book called The Traitor Baru Cormorant, which starts really interestingly. And I just read Naomi Novik's book, but like I read it, so I don't feel guilty about that. And I want to go out and read um, the new Sarah Hall book because that was recommended. Ah, there's just too much. This is too hard. Let's talk about something else for a minute because it's nearly the end of the podcast. Okay, Reading time is too about? hard. And this book, it's like, I, I want to go back and I want to systematically reread. I'd like to systematically reread CJ Cherry and Touch Base. I'd like to read, I like I'd like to read Stan Robinson in order again. Mm-hmm. I'd like to go back and reread Bill Gibson. I'd like to pull out some of those books from the 60, published in the 60s that I, lo that I loved and see if I still do. I'd like to read some of the, the new uh, Wave books that I never really read. I'd like to read some of the Le Guin that I've never read. I've read very little Ballard. Very little. Hmm. You know? Everybody has gaps in the reading that, that, that will probably never be made up. And one of the things I was... One of the conversations that I mentioned that we had at this conference in Finland with simply Neil Harrison and myself talking about the question of what would you read if you had no deadlines and no assignments. And I know that sounds like a terribly snobbish question because most people 
have to choose what they read and go out and pay for it. Um, and it's been 25 years since I've been reading without a deadline to read something else instead. And I was thinking, yeah, the books that I've been, it sounded to me like I would have loved, like the, not even science fiction books, The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime or, or The Goldfinch. Gary, one of my great... But I'm doing the same yeah. thing you were doing. One of my great dreams, a little daydreams before I go to bed at night, which sounds far too intimate but isn't, um, is the daydream where, just as I go to bed, I have read everything. I've read everything. I've considered it. I have it in historical and artistic context, and it's filed away in my brain. And when I get up t t you know, tomorrow morning to read, I am caught up on everything. That's my dream. And your name is <laughs> Legion. <Wikipedia>. You, you, you. <laughs> Did you see that? Did you see the? Just a quick thing. I saw this wacky art project this week. There's a wacky art oh. project where this guy is printing out Wikipedia as a performance yes. art thing, and then printing it on Lulu. Volume. Se seven. <coughs> no, it's like nine and not seven thousand or nine thousand volumes or something. Or and something I, I, I almost yeah. thought because I, I like you, I have a Wikipedia entry, Gary. I. Uh, considered finding the volume buying a copy of the volume that had my entry in it because it's the only encyclopedia i'm ever going to be in <laughs> well you can you know this is not true you can always get in one of the variations on who's who <laughs> yeah but only if you pay gary <laughs> no I'm, I, I may get in one that you don't have to pay for oh well well done Okay, there, there is something actually we, we were also we're going to talk about, I and mean, we were talking about Archipelagon and the Finnish Weird and translation oh. and what you do and don't have to read. Uh, we haven't talked about great books we're reading right now. I mean, I'm reading a book you've already read called Half a War by Joe Abercrombie, which I'm enjoying. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm going to go on and read other books that presumably I will enjoy that are over on that wall over there behind me. I'm, I'm like waving. You can't see, listeners. Sorry. Um... And I'm sure you've got, you've got what are, the, what are the, the pile of next books you've got to read? I've got Zen Show's novel. Uh, Ooh, uh, want that one. Mountain, which is delightful so far. Looking forward to that. Ian McDonald's Luna. Uh, read yeah, it already. Too. Read it. Excellent book. Uh, you, okay, you're ahead of me on that. Um, Michael Swanwick's uh, Darker and Surplus uh, novel. I want to read that. And uh, so I've got more novels than I can possibly cover in a, in a month. So it's going to be another one of those things where something that i really want to read is going it's not that i can't read it but as you know the cycle of reviewing means that if you don't review if you don't read it and review it within a month or two it's kind of past its sell-by date in terms of writing a review and then you're reading it on your own ticket no then what you, you mean no what you mean is you will I, never read it in your life that's possible too that, that's almost pretty much it. what you mean it's like We've talked about this before, the life cycle of a book. Oh, I'm going to write it. That's, I love that idea that you told me in the bar you're going to write. And then the, oh, guess what? I sold it. That's fantastic. I saw the notice in Locus. And then the, I heard the manuscript submitted. That's fantastic. Then an art comes by and you don't read it in art because you're too busy. And then, uh, you know, it comes out and you mean to read it. And then it's 10 years later and it's that pile of things you're never going to read. There's that pile of things. And in addition to on my Kindle or on my computer somewhere or on my iPad, I have... A couple of manuscripts of novels by by, by reasonably well-known writers who just asked me to look at them, and I have to do that kind of, um, mm -hmm. and I'm looking forward to it as well. Well, the, I had one closing yeah. thought. This okay. is, this is oh, I've got something else after your closing thought. So what do you got? Give okay. it to me. 
Because this occurred to me when you said you should have, you'd like to have those little thirty-three and a third yeah. type books on. Uh, I would like to see a series of essays in which people, anybody, writers, critics, readers, publishers, would write a short essay on some absolutely despised book or movie that they love. <laughs> it's not just a guilty pleasure, but it's, it's because it would be a not guilty pleasure. It would be. <laughs> I am going to defend this. There must be somebody out there who likes the movie The Postman. So, so what? You, what? You, or, or even the book The Postman. Um, so, book, so, book so, so what you're talking about that. is you want a, book, a series that's called what? Inexplicable Pleasures. That's even better. Much, much better than Guilty Pleasures. I love that. <laughs> I'm not sure if I have any inexplicable pleasures. I'll have to oh, think about that. I'm sure I do. There's always a few things. Well, I mean, I was telling you that I was having uh, lunch with a, with a friend who I shan't name now who found, mm -hmm. who mentioned Nicola Griffith's superb Slow River uh, to be mm -hmm. inexplicable. And, and I was shocked. I'm going, this is not an inexplicable pleasure. This is a fine, wonderful book. I love this book. So, yes, there's always that. But the one thing we're going to talk about, and we will say, it means we'll ramble over our hour a little bit, and we meant to start with it, but... As long-time listeners, in fact, probably, sadly, even short-time listeners to this podcast know, we talk about awards. We are yeah, well through awards season. Uh, we have no idea how we're going to commemorate August 26th or whatever it is, though no doubt we'll have to do something. Um, what it will be, I don't know. We'll sort of do a whoopee cushion episode. Um, but the last major award of the year, unless someone rem reminds me of one I've forgotten, is always the World Fantasy Awards. And the yes. World Fantasy Award process has publicly kicked off with the formal announcement of the two 2015 Life Achievement recipients. And you know, these are usually uh, writers who are over 65, not always, but usually over 65, mm. who have had a long and storied career in the fantasy field, not science fiction field, fantasy field. Yeah. Uh, or fantasy and horror, I guess, because there's such a, a close association between fantasy and horror uh, at World Fantasy. And uh, this year, uh, noted horror writer Ramsey Campbell has been recognized with the Life Achievement Award. And I think that's wonderful. I hear he's wonderful. I, I read, don't read much horror, so I've not actually read much Ramsey Campbell at all. But I think that's, that's terrific. I read his earlier novels, and they're, they're, they're genuinely chilling novels. And I think he's the doll who ate his mother is one that comes to mind. Um, and he's more, so more or less in the tradition of Algernon Blackwood, I suppose, only a little bit darker and more violent. And um, and he's also somebody who was all over the map. He wrote a lot of stuff, and again, in terms of our inexplicable pleasures, <coughs> did novelizations of some pretty awful B Hollywood movies, which suggests to me that he's open yeah. to anything. And the other one is Sherry S. Uh, Tepper, uh, who has been writing since the early 1980s. Entered the field with, oh, three, maybe four or five trilogies of smart, whimsical, um, playful, thoughtful fantasy novels. Uh, the Marianne, mm -hmm. the Magus and the Manticore series, the Ginian Footseer series, the uh, Maven the Many Shaped series, you know, the True Game books. A couple of horror novels, some terrific stuff up through about 1990 particularly would be what this is mostly recognizing, I would think. And up, up until... I don't think so because... Yeah. I think it was... It must have been either the late 80s or early 90s that um, The Gate to Women's Country, which really made a splash in feminist science fiction at the time and led to 
except for a few others which combine fantasy and science fiction, like Beauty, for example. Mm. Uh, but essentially, she was a science fiction writer mostly from the early 90s on. I, I think that's true. I mean, I'm always very puzzled by the world's response to The Gate to Women's Country, which I found an unexceptional, unexceptional and uninteresting novel, frankly. Mm. I found it uh, di didactic. I found it heavy-handed. Um, and I, I th it came out around the same time, if not exactly the same time, as Pamela Sargent's much more interesting, much more substantial, and much better written The Shore of Women. Mm -hmm. uh, now, before this sounds like a put-down of Sherry Tepper, Tepper actually followed it up with what I think is her best novel of her entire writing career. Like her very next book, she did The Gate to Women's Country, which I read and I went, oh, look, another no-men book, that's great. And as we were talking, others, there are other problematic issues with that particular book and that trilogy, the, sorry, that particular book, uh, which we won't go into here because we don't, I, th I think it, it sidelines us, but you know, some other time we may talk about it. But she came back with Grass, which is this smart, intelligent, interesting, interesting, interesting um, mm -hmm. science fiction novel that was up for the Hugo and the Locus Awards uh, and really deserves to stand as a classic of the field. Um, but you're right, almost exclusively from Raising the Stones till last year's Fish Tales, she has written mm. science fiction, even though Fish Tales does cross over with the True Game series. It's, it's, a, it's essentially an odyssey through all of her fictional worlds. Uh, yeah, it strikes me as a little bit like that last episode with David Tennant in the Doctor Who, where he ran away, zipped around and said goodbye to everybody. Exactly, that's what it seems to be. Yeah. Um, but but, but, but the, the, yeah, the, the didacticism is, is part and parcel of her fiction. After the original fantasies, because I read a few of the very first ones, and they didn't seem to have that, but she had very specific ideas about... Uh, what is now sometimes called ecofeminism, what is um, certainly uh, a set of environmental concerns. She had some odd and, and unattractive ideas that show up in some of these fiction issues. We can't get into that without getting into it. Mm -hmm. um, but by and large, uh, she worked out everything like a science fiction writer, and people probably might be puzzled initially to realize that for the first decade of her career, in a very prolific decade, uh, she produced a lot of fantasy. Yeah. Well, yes. Yeah, so, she's uh, also one of the writers. Yeah. She was also one of the first writers going back to a novel like *A Plague of Angels*, where she was testing the borders between science fiction and mm -hmm. fantasy. You'll start that novel starts in a pastoral fantasy setting and seems to have a kind of a wizard in it, and then it ends up in this gritty uh, sort of almost cyberpunk city, nightmarish city of the, of the future. Uh, so, so the idea of balancing the genres is something she played with. But, but her, her major modality was science fiction for, for the novels that she's best known for. Yeah. I think she turns 86 in about a week or so. More power to her. So, congratulations. She's also, yeah. the one thing that can be said about her, I think, in general, and, and it's, it's something we can say about few other writers as well, and it's Stan, Kim Stanley Robinson is one, Paolo Bacigalupi is another one, they are extremely and seriously committed to the possibility that their fiction can change minds. Yes. So, so that you'll, you'll find all of them, not so much in Bacigalupi, but you'll find in Robinson and in Tepper, uh, even though you may not agree with their conclusions or even their premises, there is an absolute commitment to fiction making a difference in the world. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I, I think, actually, I mean, you talk about 
three writers who I would describe as deeply passionate about what they're doing. And there are others in the That's field, exactly. but those three would fall into that. And so I actually applaud the uh, World Fantasy Award judges for their, their, their choices to very fine recipients of a Life Achievement Award. I'll be curious to see. How, I know that Mr. I think Ramsey Campbell will be attending Saratoga Springs. Uh, to you know, to, to receive his life achievement award, unfortunately, uh, Sherry Shepard doesn't travel anymore, uh, so she won't be. Which is a pity because I would love to have the chance to thank her for Grass, which I I love and adore, mm. and for the earlier books. I mean, I know uh, my my wife Marianne uh, and I both love the Marianne trilogy, and I really enjoyed the three the three True Game trilogies, which are all all wonderful books as well, and some of the later ones mm -hmm. as well. The Northerners, Southerners. There was the horror novels, which were great. Uh, so, a whole bunch of stuff. But I mean, I, I did. I like Mysteries, one of them. MJ Ord or Ordway or something. Like it was that. like AJ Ord, I think. AJ Ord, I think, yeah. And it was a good Well, not the I think part, because the I think would be a fun. Yeah. She, she wrote uh, on, actually under a couple, three different pseudonyms. Because she wrote mm. AJ, Mysteries AJ Ord, something as E.E. E. Horlack, and she also wrote maybe Romance as B.J. Oliphant. I think that may have been Romance, too. Yeah. Our. our, our our mutual friend Charles Brown was uh, was was close with Sherry Tepper for several years. Visited her at her at her ranch in the Southwest and um, and read her manuscripts, and they seemed to get along uh, very well. And it was partly through that that I met her once, uh, met her and her husband, and uh, uh, she struck me as being uh, very firm in her demeanor and, uh, and, and and very clear in her opinions. But not not at all um, overbearing in the way you would get from some of these long um, passages of exposition and argumentation in her novels. Yeah. Um, oh. She felt that her novels were a way of expressing passion, and I think one of the th it's, it's a debate which you can have about the nature of fiction. But uh, but she knew that she was criticized for 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 preaching in her novels, and her response to that was that. No, her novels were her way of preaching. It's not. It's not a mistake. It's the point of writing novels. It it is interesting, actually, and maybe a, su a subject for another podcast because this one is largely done. Where mm. um, you, it, it's worth talking about why, how sometimes what an author is criticised for is their actual intent. You know, uh, the, the other classic example, one that the the author in question, Sam Robinson, is very passionate about, is um, exposition. You know, mm -hmm. uh, he's very passionate about the use of it as a form in science fiction, and similarly, obviously, with 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 Tepper, where the preaching is what she's there for. So, something to talk about another yeah. time, not th this time. We'll and, do that another time. I, I think we can say, since we've talked about Archipelagon, this is Cood Street episode two hundred and forty, Gary. I think it is. I'm fairly sure. Okay. It might be two hundred and thirty-nine. I'm now going to check. That that sound you hear, listeners, is me typing, going, "Did we do two hundred and thirty out of two hundred and thirty-nine? This might be two hundred and thirty-nine. Let me have a look. No. Oh, gee, I was getting ahead, wasn't I? This is two hundred and thirty-nine. So, this, okay. so, so I should edit this off because it sounds terrible, but I'll leave it. Uh, All right. Th this has been Cood Street episode two hundred and thirty-nine. Cood Street episode two hundred and forty will come to you next week, and will feature Karen Tidbeck and Cheryl Morgan talking to you, Gary, at Archipelagon. Along with Johanna. No, Johanna is not there. No, and I have uh, previewed that episode, listeners, and I can tell you that it's a very, very good one. And next week, Gary, you will be at ReaderCon, will you not? I will be at ReaderCon along with Nicola Griffith um, hey, Nicola. and a lot of our friends. 
and we will attempt to podcast. We have one big idea, which you know, we're going to see if we can follow through on, but I won't mention it because it may not happen. Yeah, exactly. Um, and that would be wonderful. Hopefully that will happen. And then we, ha- we have to catch up. We're behind, Gary. Aren't we? We'll have to do two in one week. But the, Twice. The, 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 the time that you, you have some time off coming up, I have some time off, so we'll just... We, 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 maybe we'll go on a... On a bi-weekly schedule. A binge. That sound you hear, Gary, is every one of our listeners going, oh my God, no, not more than one a week. I couldn't cope. No, not more than one a week. (laughs) I actually have this idea for a side series, but I'll talk to you about that some other time. We'll talk about that some other time. We don't need a side series right now. Okay. Well, with that, I think this has been, now it's been wonderful talking to you and I'll talk to you next week. And this is as it has been and it remains. The Coot Street Podcast.